So this section here in Peter, you guys remember last week, we were, I said verses 1 and 2, and then I realized we were really only in verse 1. So I, I think I was in, I actually, actually did not make it to verse 2. We were in the second half of verse 1 for maybe five minutes. I plan on getting further this week, but we're going to go verse 1 again. I'm going to start there and read to 6. We might get a little bit past 6 today, but let's just see. Uh, what the Lord has for us. But I'm going to start in verse 1 again. I'm going to read down to 6.
Absolutely striking phrase right there. Has ceased from sin. And uh, he's, he's, he's saying something right here then. So the reason then and the purpose for arming yourselves with the way of Christ, sufferings and glory, is so you have this kind of this clean break. But if you think to cease from sin, I mean, you don't get a cleaner break than that, right? It's not like cease from sometimes sinning, cease from sinning most of the time. It says has ceased. Like this is a, this is a complete action right here has ceased from sin. So, I'm like you, and I know I'm like you. You think of the objection in your own ear. Well, what do you mean has ceased from sin? Can, can somebody actually, are you trying to tell me that if, if I've been united with Jesus in his suffering, that I, I should have this clean break with no longer sinning anymore, Right? And someone might, you know, posit the, the scripture. Okay, well, John says that if we have no sin, then what? We deceive ourselves, right? Truth is not in us. So how can we say then we've ceased from sin? It's not a bad question to ask yourself, right? Because you can think just on the surface level, how can John say that? And then Peter's saying, well, if you've shared in Christ's sufferings, you've ceased from sin. And uh, I want us to think, okay, what do we believe about the Bible, brethren? Ultimately, who's it from? God, right? Is God a liar? No, so God cannot contradict himself. So when you come to stuff like this in the Bible, because I, this happened to me as a young believer, I would panic sometimes, like, I don't have an answer for that. Maybe, maybe the verses, you know, it's like you're trying to put together, like, well, well maybe I can, I, I can uh, try to bring these two together this way, this way, and, and it's just like, just relax for a second. If, God, if we really believe that this is actually God's word, wasn't just written by men, this really is from God, then we don't need to panic and go, okay, God's word is contradicting one another, right? We can think, what are the contexts for which these things are said, right? And be able to back up a little bit and say, what is meant by these phrases? Because John is just as inspired as Peter, and John says that if you say you have no sin, you are deceived. The truth's not in you, right? That's not a good thing in John. And yet Peter can say, if you've shared in Christ's sufferings, you've had a clean break with sin. So while it looks like a dilemma, I don't think it is. So let, let, let's kind of dig in here for a bit. So Peter here speaks the same way, kind of, that, that John and Paul do in other places. So I know 1 John, you have that phrase in here. But why don't, let's, let's listen to another phrase in 1 John, because I, I think most people would want to identify the, well, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, that's true. But back up a little bit in 1 John chapter 1. Here's what John also says, and he sounds a lot like Peter here. This is 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Now, the words aren't the same, but the concept is definitely here. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, what's the conclusion? We lie and do not practice the truth. And then later on, 1 John chapter 2, he says this, verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So let's, let's just think about those two verses right, off the, right, right at face value. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, right? Sinning, right? If we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, what does he say? We lie and we do not practice the truth, right? Okay, so once again, 
Peter might say something that on the face of it sounds different than John, but even John says this, right? And think of John's old letter. Is John contradicting himself? No, brethren, he's not. God wrote 1 John 2, right? He, he wrote that book through John. John's not also a dummy. John knows how to make an argument. So without even some kind of grand explanation for these different phrases and how they work together and everything, we can just look to resolve this and know Peter is not saying something here in 1 Peter 4 that is some far-fetched statement that has no other parallel in the Bible. John does. I mean, Paul does it elsewhere. I mean, John did it right there, right after he says later that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So this is not some crazy out-of-nowhere verse, and then nowhere then should we see this as some kind of contradiction. This is simply, and we're going to go through a few of these uses, this is simply because the Bible can speak about sin in different ways, right? It's like when you use the word, if I said the word red to you, and then I asked everybody, what do I mean by the word red? Well, depending on what I mean by the red, even whether I'm talking about red the color, red as in I read something, or you know, if I, all the different uses of the word red, I could be referring to something else. And then even in the context, I could be using that word differently. So we need to be able to look and just because the Bible uses the word sin does not mean that in every single instance, we're always talking about the same concept. You guys following me on that? So when the Bible uses and speaks of the, uh, of the phrase, you know, the sin or sin, it can use it in different ways. And so one of them is this, at times, the Bible can speak of sin in, in viewing it as almost like a state, like, 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 like your state of being, like you just are sinful, right? And we all understand that from something like Romans 5, right? Sin came into the world and the death spread to all men because what? All sin. Now, did, did, did all sin in the moment that sin entered into the world, no, but, but, but a state of sin fell upon men, right? So we can speak of sin in that way as this state, this, this kind of your realm of existence as a sinful one. And Paul says it like this in Romans 6. So this is uh, Romans 6, 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, right, our old state, our old existence was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, right? Your state or mode, you were a slave, brethren. You, you were sinful to the core. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, listen, this is important. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Why does he say that? Because you've been united with him in his death. So you've died to sin. You've moved out of that state or realm of sin and you've moved into a new one, one of life, one in which you will ultimately attain its final conclusion, the resurrection of the dead. Right, so you guys can see that one, right? Sin can refer to then as kind of this state or kind of this, this, this mode of existence. But at other times, sin can be viewed as a continued course of action. 
almost like a habit, right? We speak of habits, right? People have good or bad habits, but kind of this habitual practice of continuing on in sinning. And so with the, the idea here is this, it's just something that's continue, continually, and it's progressive, right? You're just moving on and sin and sin and sin and sin. And this is the key, I think, for to trying to understand what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4, and then what someone like John is talking about in 1 John. And the reason for that is, when you go back there and look at 1 John, if you guys want to flip there, you can see these phrases. So in 1 John chapter 1, if you look at there at verse 6, and it's going to go on throughout the book, John is always going to make his arguments like this, right? John is going to create a, a relationship here in 6 and then throughout the book with two key phrases. He's going to relate it to the phrase, if we say blah, 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 right? And keep on walking in blah, blah, blah. And then he's going to make the connection too. So he's going to create a relationship with those two things. If we say and keep on walking, and you can see that there. If we say we have fellowship with him and then here we have the connecting while we walk in darkness, or you can translate that, keep on walking in darkness, right? Then there's going to be a connection and a conclusion he draws. So the idea is this. If we say something about ourselves, right, but we walk in a manner that's different than what we say, then, he, then he's going to conclude something from that, from this. So the idea here is something like, as someone who has had a clean break with sin, and they've been transferred out of one state into another, right? Sin can't have dominion over them. So we, we, we can't say that we have fellowship with God, like it says there in 1 John 6, right? That we have fellowship with Him, and then we do what? We continue walking in the thing we said we're free from, right? But those are two different things, right? You, you were taken from that domain, that state of existence, of, of being in sin, of being a sinful person, you are taken out of that domain and put into another domain. So now the person who says with their lips, well, I have fellowship with God. I know God. I trust in God. Or whoever they want to say, and then they walk a different way, brethren. What do we call that person? A liar. Or another way we put it is a hypocrite. Right? The way that you speak doesn't matter if the way that you live does not match the way that you speak. But those are two different things. So this doesn't mean then, right, let me just clarify for everyone in the room, as you think of 1 Peter 4, here's one thing that I don't think it means. Does it mean that Christians will never sin again after having that decisive break from sin, right? Does it mean that? Because John clearly says that if we say we have no sin, and right there I think he's talking about this, that, that, that we, don't have any, we don't have any kind of uh, sin that pops up in our life, right? As I'm walking along and I commit a sin. I think he's talking about something like that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? So I, I don't think that Peter here then is saying, well, you have to have this decisive break with sin. You can no longer sin and identify or identify them with, with Christ and his sufferings. Because I don't think that's the context of Peter and I don't think that's the context of John. I think they have two different contexts here. However, though, listen, we don't want to dull the truth in of first peter chapter four right something amazing has happened here well it may not mean i will not sin again after having a decisive break from being a sinner someone who is sinful someone who's in this realm of sin 
it does mean this, brethren, because first John clarifies and affirms this too. It does mean Christians don't walk the same. Right? You guys been out to First Friday and you, and you talk to someone? How many people have told us they're Christians? I mean, it's uncountable at this point. It's like everyone in Las Vegas must be a Christian for the most part. And yet, brethren, how are they walking? What kind of life, what fruit is coming from their life to show you they believe what a Christian is, right? And a Christian is someone who has had a break with sin. They don't walk the same way anymore. So it does mean then Christians don't walk in the same manner they used to because there has been a clean break with sin. So you can say with all of your heart there in 1 Peter 4, for whoever, anybody who, is, who shares in the sufferings of Christ in the flesh has ceased from sin. Brethren, you've had a clean break from it. That, that's not how you're identified anymore. I know sometimes we sing it in songs, what a worm I am, this and that. And I understand the intentionality behind that. I'm not knocking it. We sing some of those things. But ultimately, brethren, when you're a Christian, you ought not to speak of yourself in that, in that way. That's not who you are anymore. There's been a break with that. You know how you talk now? That's who I used to be. That's not who I am anymore. I mean, try getting through the Christian life and all you ever talk about is how, how big of a wretch am I? How big of a sinner am I this and this? And you just always are referring to yourself in the negative. And it's like, brethren, stop. How does the Bible constantly speak of us? Does it at times refer to us in a negative way? Well, most certainly does. But you know what the overwhelming majority is? You are a saint in Christ Jesus, beloved of the Father. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You are a beloved son or daughter of the Cambrian brethren. That is, the, that is the language of which the Bible talks about us. So we can look then at 1 Peter 4 and go, I have shared in Christ's sufferings in the flesh, clean break from sin. Just like 1 John says, that if, that, 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 that if I say I have fellowship with Him, then my life ought to mimic what I'm saying. I ought to have a life that says, I do have fellowship with God. Why? I walk in the light. I walk by the word. There's a, there's a, there's a continuity to the two. But if I say I have fellowship with them while walking in darkness, the Bible calls, not me, brethren, the Bible says we are liars. That person's a liar who says they believe in God, but they don't walk according to God's rules and statutes. They don't walk according to God's commandments. The Bible says you're a liar. So Peter puts it this way here in, in 1 Peter 2. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And this is important, right? Because he's, he's telling you, this is why Christians do this. This is why you do this. Since, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Brethren, 1 Peter recognizes this so clearly. So when we get to 4, and he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I mean, he's not contradicting himself back there in chapter 2. Why do we live in such a way now? You've been born again, not from a dead word, but from a living word, an imperishable, living, and abiding word of God. You have been born of God. Therefore, you live a certain way. You purified yourselves by your obedience. So brethren, listen. Peter can say this, which means for all of us here, we can say this. We can own that verse. We don't have to be afraid to say stuff like that. Now, if I'm going out walking in sin, what do I need to do before claiming that reality in my life? 
I should do what First John tells me to do. If you say that you, well, if you have no sin, right, the truth's not in you. But if we confess our sins, what is he faithful to do? Yeah, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, he's been able to cleanse us and to, and to bring us back into right fellowship with him. So, brethren, Peter can say this. There has been, if you are a Christian in this room, the reality is there's been a clean break. Brethren, has there been a clean break? I mean, just ask yourself that. And if the answer is yes, praise the Lord. Now, does that mean I need to know the moment that God went and made the break? No, I don't. I, brother, I don't know that. I'm standing up here, and I tell you, I don't know when that was, but you know what I do know now? There's been a clean break, brethren. I'm not claiming to be perfect. Y'all know me. Am I perfect? Where's my wife? Amen, right? Not perfect, right? She knows, and you guys should all know. Your pastor and your pastors, whoever it gets up here, is not perfect. Brethren, you ought to be able to say of yourself, there was a clean break. <laughs> and it's not something you did. Right? Peter says, since therefore, right, you have been born again. This is why you live this way. And brethren, this is, this is the actual reality of the command. Why ought you to arm yourselves with this way of thinking? Because if you've shared in Christ's sufferings, it means God did something. It means God made a break with sin for you. Ceasing from sin. Not walking like that anymore. And this, once again, I think is something that we should consider as, as Christians, because we forget to do this too. Because that reality can come to us sometimes and it can really exhort us and make us happy or it can really exhort us and make us feel bad about ourselves. But listen, that it's not intended to do one and, and, and then to just on the other side, well, if you feel bad, whatever. Well, brother, if it makes you feel bad, it's not there to leave you out there hanging out to dry. It's, it's out there to, to, to bring to mind to you, okay, well, there's a way that I always come back, right? It's always there for me. It's available for me. And this is just the way the gospel works, right? This is kind of our gospel logic 101 course. Why do we arm ourselves? Well, brethren, we've had a clean break from sin. That's why we arm ourselves. Well, how do we know? Because we endure, right? So it's like we get this balancing effect of, yes, I do look to my fruit in the Christian life. How do I know I've had the clean break? I'm enduring. Hardship and suffering come. What am I not doing with my lips? Not forsaking him, right? I'm not forsaking the way. But when I do sin, what do I do then? Well, okay, do I look... Well, I didn't do that right, therefore I must not be a Christian. No, brethren, you look back to the promise. You look back that if I confess my sin with my, with my mouth, right, God is faithful and just to forgive me, to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and I can continue to walk then again in purity. So, brethren, how do we know? Well, we endure, we suffer hardship of the flesh. And this, brethren, should not be a strange thing for us. We should know as Christians, to some degree, not perfectly, not absolutely, I have not been perfect in my Christian life, but you know what? I've endured. I've fought. I've armed myself. I know that I've been waging war. I've suffered in the flesh. And brethren, I mean, just think about how weird that is because we think if we suffer, we're not perfect. Oh, I've suffered and I've battled with sin. I've had to arm myself with this mentality. We think, oh, because I've suffered, oh, I'm just not a Christian. We become so introspective. Brethren, <laughs> that's not what Peter's doing for you. He said, are you suffering? Then you've ceased. That's a, that's the, God, I mean, the logic on that is just not what we would normally say. But that is the gospel logic. If I'm, if I'm suffering in the flesh, I'm waging war, arming myself. Brethren, let that be a comfort to you. 
Let that be a comfort for the weary soul in here who is fighting and fighting and fighting, but your fighting makes it feel like you're not actually God's. Well, he says, if you're fighting, right? If you've suffered in the flesh and you're trying to wage war, brethren, he says you've ceased from sin. That though your battle may be hard, brethren, you are not what you once were. You need to remember that. Right? You need to remember that God is saying that that's your faith there in action. Even when you're struggling, your faith is still there in action. Endure. That's it. He doesn't say be perfect. He says endure. Endure with these hardships. And as we're going to see here, whether, brethren, that's through maligning and name-calling, or as Peter and some of his people were hearing in their day, that was through persecution, either physical harm, or they're actually being killed. Brethren, our suffering... Hardship in the Christian life for walking in his ways is a testimony for you. It's actually there to encourage you. <laughs> now that sounds so weird, right? Because you could think about it with Christ. How did Christ's sufferings testify to him? Like, why would suffering testify to you? Well, what did the sufferings of Christ testify to him? That he was God's son. That, that, that he was the one that God had to, that, that he had to stricken and smitten his own son right? It testified to him that this doesn't mean that I'm not God's son. It actually means something. God's bringing me through something. And brethren, that should. As you're walking in his ways, suffering in the flesh, enduring hardship, it's a testimony of your break with sin. I've, I've been cut off from that thing. I'm not what I was anymore. And this relates to the cross. Why can we take joy in the suffering in the flesh, brethren? Because Christ took joy in it. Christ suffered in the flesh. He suffered in the flesh for sin and sinners, and this was to bring us to God. So, we suffer in the flesh to do what? Not to get to God, but know that we are God's. Right? He, God, he's done that for you. Christ did it to bring you. You did it to know. That, that's the gospel logic right there. We've been brought into this. Yes, we suffer in our flesh. How do we know we've been brought into this? We suffer in the flesh as Christ suffered in the flesh. In His obedience to the will of God. So we know that we are when we suffer because Christ in God's will suffered. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of this really weird logic in the Bible, but that's the logic of the gospel right there. Christ suffered to take on sin, so what? So that we can continue to take on sin? No, so that we could have a clean break with it. And as we're fighting against it, it would testify to the reality that we're walking with Him. Brethren, just as Christ's obedience to His Father's will demonstrated the righteousness of His suffering, brethren, by taking on sin, so your break with sin is to the glory of the Father as you endure hardship in the will of God. I mean, all that's true in the Gospel. Amen. You're not having to be Jesus in the sense of you're not having to be perfect and be your Savior. You look to the one who suffered for sin so that you can suffer in hardship and know that you're God's. Not to become God's. You're to know that you are of God's. But brethren, keep enduring. Continue in suffering and hardship. So, this mindset then is having one where we have a clean break with sin. It ought to cause us then. If that's what God has done for me, then I ought to no longer walk in the old manner, as Peter says there in verse 2. So as what? To live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no more, but for the will of God. But here again, we think, okay, yes, we're going to take that truth out now. We're going to go do it, right? So if I suffer, well, now at least everybody knows I'm suffering for the will of God. Like, it's going to be that easy, brethren. And I'm here to just, one, I guess if this encourages you, it's not going to be that easy, but it's not going to be an impossible task. Here comes the difficulty. 
You might be motivated then to walk in this manner in accordance with what God's done for us. And Peter knows his own people are going to think this way, right? He knows the difficulty, though, and temptation is going to come our way. Because here's what he says in 3 and 4. Right? It's not an accident that he says this in 3 and then concludes with his result there in 4. So look at verses 3 and 4 with me. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So he's telling you why we live this remaining time in the flesh, not for human passions, but for the will of God, right? Because that time is past for us, right? The, the time that suffices to do the things that worldly people do, it's gone. That time is gone. But notice what he says after he describes all these things, right? So for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What do Gentiles do? And just to translate that, worldly people, people who don't know Jesus, this is what they like to go and do. They like to live in sensuality, right? They like to live in sexual immorality. They like to go around and live in a way that does not honor the God sexually. They like to live in passions, right? What do people want to go do all the time? They just want to go and fulfill every desire they have. Well, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. I want to feel this way. I want, to, I want, I want something to make me feel this way. I just want what I want, right? So living in sensuality, living in passions, drunkenness. That sin is as old as Genesis 3 right there. Men going around wanting to live in drunkenness. Orgies. People living in... in not to, I'm not even going to get graphic. Just living in ungodly ways, trying to satisfy every sexual urge that they have. Drinking parties. Brethren, and to just cap it all off, lawless idolatry. That's what, that's what worldly people, that's how they're living. And he's saying the time for that, it's gone. That's why, that's why we're living the rest of our time in the flesh. We're not living like that. Because that time, that, that, that time frame that we lived in that, it's gone. Suffice it, we've, we did that in our past. No, no more to do. But he says this for a reason right here. Because in verse 4, right, he's going to say, with respect to this, talking about how they live, What's going to happen? It's not just you're going to observe these things. In verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Okay. <laughs> well, that's not great, right? I just got this summons called in verse 1 and 2. Arm myself, right? I'm, I'm going to arm myself with this way of thinking. Hardship persecution I'm going to endure because Christ has made a clean break with sin for me therefore I'm going to do this I'm motivated to do this not going to live like the world used to how I used to do it living in all sorts of different things but then he says with respect to this though they're going to be surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery and here's what's coming they're going church they're going to malign you People will speak ill of you because you do not want to join in with them in what they do. So, if the matters could get worse for us here, they kind of do a little bit. We're going to end with good stuff, though, so don't worry. But not only will we have to endure hardship and suffering for the name of Christ, which, why do you endure suffering and hardship? Because you're trying to live a certain way, brethren. Right? You don't endure suffering and hardship because you're living the way the world wants you to live. Who, who causes their own to suffer? right? The reason you're doing that is because you're trying to live a certain way. So not only are we going to have to endure hardship and suffer for the name of Christ, but you're going to have rival interpretations of your suffering and hardship around you. 
I mean, does that make that any easier? Right? Because we think when we read the Bible, well, God said that this is suffering and hardship. So now everyone's going to recognize the truth of what the Bible says. Brethren, they don't. I mean, in fact, sometimes even Christians don't recognize the suffering of their own, their own brethren. So we think to ourselves, okay, they'll recognize it, but no. Not only that, you're going to have people who have a rival interpretation of what you're going through, right? And notice this in verse 4. They watch you. You don't join in, and so you're suffering for this. And what are they doing under your hardship? Oh, you know what? He's just living for God. He's suffering for God. We'll just kind of leave him be. No, 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 brethren, the world will not leave you alone. They malign you. They malign you for not behaving like they do, which means you behave a different way. And Peter says it like this earlier in 1 Peter 3.16. He says, so that when you're slandered, right, not just maligned, you're falsely being accused is when your name gets slandered like that. You're being falsely accused of something. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So sometimes, listen to this, brethren, because I do this. I know we do this. Sometimes we romanticize the idea of, of suffering and hardship because we act like when it comes, everyone's going to take notice that, that all my suffering and hardship, it's going to be noticed by all. They're going to know that's from God. Leave him be. He's suffering for the name of God. Just like everyone can walk into a room and see a pretty piece of art and go, oh, that art's beautiful. We think people will look at our hardship the same way. And everyone in the room is going to go, oh, yeah, he's just suffering for God's sake. We're just going to leave him alone. But brethren, don't be fooled by that. We will, not only are we going to suffer for hardship, but there are going to be those who do not see our hardship for what it is. In fact, they're going to even deny at times that you're even facing hardship. I mean, isn't that one of the things right now? I mean, I know we're not dealing with hardship the way other Christians are in the world, but Christians will bring true facts out like, hey, we get canceled a lot. Hey, we don't get allowed to have a voice on here. Hey, we get marginalized in cultural talks and, and all these different things. And what does the world say back to you? Oh, yeah, we do that, but, you know, just go off into your own. No, they go, no, you don't. That doesn't happen to Christians. Christians just whine and whine, and they just, they just want to complain all the time about being marginalized, and they're not, right? They don't even see it the same as you. You're looking at your situation one way, but the world, they malign you. And at times they malign you by going, that's not true. And they're saying something false. But brother, I think worse than that is then. Not only may they deny your hardship, I think the harder one is this. That they recognize you're going through hardship, but they interpret your hardship as actual foolishness. Right? It's one thing if someone says, no, you're not going through hardship. And you're just like... Well, I can't convince you. So it's, you know, it's like, what am I? I'm not going to be out here wasting my breath. But the harder one, brethren, is when people do. They see you being maligned. They see you suffering. And they see you enduring hardship. And they interpret your hardship as a fool. Right? They, they just look at you. This guy's a fool. This woman, she's a fool. Why, why, would, why, would, why would you put yourself in that situation, Right? That all you're doing is the reason you're suffering is you're facing poor decision making. Like you Christians out here are just making a bunch of dumb decisions. It's your fault that all that stuff's happening to you, brother. And that's worse. Imagine suffering under the weight of something and someone comes along, oh, it's just your fault. I mean, who comes to mind in your ear? All the Job's accusers. Job, pick your head up. You're, you're like this because of what you did, Job. 
God doesn't punish people because of this, this, or this. He punishes people because they're sinful people. And the world may not attribute it to God, but they'll go, ah, poor decision-making. And brethren, they're going to look at you and your hardships and think, what a poor fool. These Christians in here all throwing their lives away. And then they want to complain about it when they're suffering through hardship. And brethren, listen, this problem intensifies. Because not only will your hardship have different interpretations as Christian, but your way of life, as contrasted to that of the world, you will be, it's almost like it's inviting you to two different invitations, right? Because if on your path, you're suffering and enduring hardship, and on the other path, the world, with all of its openness and its debauchery and sinfulness, interprets your difficulty as foolishness, well, what's going to end up being presented before you? Well, there's two paths, right? It's almost like you're giving these contrasted ways of life. Two proposed ways of living then. Well, you can live under that suffering and hardship, but you're doing it as a fool. Why don't you come live on this side where you get to do what you want with no hardship? I mean, brother, that, talk about making it more difficult. You're suffering under hardship, and then you're looking at people who are not, the ones who are maligning you, and that road looks a lot easier to walk down than the one that you're walking down. Brethren, it's not only going to be difficult to endure when people interpret you as a fool, but people will look at both of those ways and go, why are they not choosing the easy way? I mean, you think of like Pilgrim's Progress, right? <laughs> it rings of that. Why is Christian choosing the road less traveled? Why is he choosing the narrow way? What a fool, right? Often thinks he's a fool, right? And then, and, and then Pliable later thinks he's a fool simply because he falls into the mud and gets dirty a little bit. He says, now you're a fool too. I mean, brethren, listen, people will look at both of these ways, both of these invitations, and they're going to conclude something wrong about them. And it's going to present a temptation in your mind, the worldly way or the Christian way. I mean, you think the devil is just pulling an absolute amazing PR stunt here. <laughs> it's like he's putting a commercial on before you. You could have your hard way your difficult way, the one that's got a lot of challenges, or you could have the great, easy way. I mean, I don't know, brethren, have you ever looked and gone, I can have hardship. That's the way I'm going. <laughs> no one in here has ever said that. So, brethren, you can have the hardship, or you can have the freedom to live the way you want, indulge all your passions. That is the invitation that the temptation ultimately gives you. So the question simply becomes this, what's going to resolve the dilemma? Because I think that's what he's building them up for there in verse 5. There's a dilemma. You're to arm yourselves for a battle, and brethren, don't think that what you're being trained for in the battle is to go out and shake hands with the enemy. I mean, you're going to have to fight, and the temptation is going to be that you're no longer going to walk a certain way, but people will malign you for it. Why do you live different now? That's kind of dumb, right? Why would you do this? Why, why would you live a certain way just because some guy in a book says to do it? So there's got to be some kind of resolution because, brother, if you, just, if you stop at four and you want to live your life that, that's going to be a hard Christian life to live. You need some kind of thing to break this dilemma for you. Here it is in verse 5. Here's what's going to break the dilemma for you. And this is going to seem kind of sad, but this should actually be a joy for you as a Christian. <laughs> should be a joy for you. Look at verse 5. But, and a lot of good buts in the Bible, right? Romans 3, but God did what for us, right? Think of John 3, 16, right? But God sent His only Son into the world, right? There's, there's some good ones in the Bible. This is another good one. It's just not as happy-go-lucky as you might think. But this is a good thing for you. But 
even though they're going to malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I mean, church, let me just ask you, do you believe God is going to bring recompense upon those who malign and slander you? And when I mean recompense, I'm talking vengeance. Righteous anger upon people who will malign you and speak ill of you. Peter says earlier, who, who will slander you. Do you believe that? I mean, I know we do up here. Yeah, God's the judge of all the earth. He's going to do what's right. Brian, I'm, but bro, I'm not talking, do you believe it? Like, do you believe to arm yourself intellectually? Are you going to live in such a way to arm yourself? Well, do you live in such a way that verse 5 is true? Yeah, they will malign me, but they're going to give an account. Recompense is going to come. Is God going to bring recompense against those who malign and slander you? And this seems kind of like an odd thing to us because we've just been culturized in our modern day. We don't like to think people get judged, brethren, but they most certainly do. You don't have to sit there with a smile on your face and delight in it. But brethren, the reality is true. And this is actually not just a reality that's true. It's the thing that ought to help you when they malign you. Like when they're out there maligning you and speaking ill of you, you go, they're going to give an account to the one who's standing ready to judge the living and the dead. And this is how the dilemma passes. How do you break through that facade? Because this is what the temptation creates. It's this facade and illusion that the worldly way is the way to go. And brother, people are like this when you're preaching the gospel to them at First Friday. And, and they know that they're in sin, but they're unwilling to go down the hard and narrow path, brethren. Why? They believe, the, it's, and it is, brethren, amen this, right? It's an illusion. The life of sin is an illusion. Because they think at the end of it, it's nothing but green grass and roses. But at the end of it is hellfire. They're deluded in their thinking. So don't, don't be, don't be tricked in the facade and the illusion that the worldly life is the way to go. There is, for everybody in this room, a day of reckoning that is coming. Accounts, brethren, are going to be measured. Men will be tried in this room. The worldly life will be found at the end of the day wanting. You will have none of it left. Recompense is coming. And a wise man once said in a song, you can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, what's God going to do? He's going to cut you down. That's right. Brethren, that's real. I don't delight in that truth because I love seeing God cut people down. But I will delight in this, that God is just and the judge of the living and the dead. And that's actually how I get through the maligning. That's what he says there for you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, Ron, let me ask you another question just to bring that point home further. Do you long for the day of God's judgment against his enemies? Not just do you affirm it, do you long for it? That's a hard thing. To, I mean, I know, I'm, amen. I'm glad you all amen did. That ain't going to preach in most churches, and I'm not saying that because we're special. That's a hard truth to swallow. You're like, is that biblical? Longing for the day of judgment against God's enemies? Brethren, have we read the Psalms before? I mean, listen to how the early church did it. This is how the early church did it. This is Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out, listen, brethren, with one voice. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you 
will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Brethren, like the early church, we need to have something like that deep within our bones. Not only do we believe, yes, recompense is coming against God's enemies, we long for the day when God will vindicate us. That's what's happening in these verses. It is not people standing by sadistically wanting people to be judged. Brethren, it's recognizing that just like unbelievers can stand in a law of court, and they can stand there looking at someone who's murdered their own family and go, I want justice. I want justice for that person. You killed them, and I want justice on behalf of my flesh and blood. Christians can stand there and say, I want justice on behalf of my suffering God. I want you to vindicate me. Because when they speak and they malign and they slander, they're saying something about you that's not true. Which means that if God's declared something over you, church, they are lying about God. The offense is not with us. Oh, how dare you offend the Christian. Brethren, people will offend you all day. But when they speak ill of you, church, they're speaking ill of what God has declared over you. Who made the clean break from sin? God did it for you. How have we walked in holiness? Because we've been born again, brethren. So when people malign us, when people say all sorts of untrue things, brethren, you entrust yourself the way the early church did to the judge of all the earth. He is going to be the one who brings recompense against his enemies, and he will vindicate you. And he's setting you up for this. It's kind of like almost bolstering you for that verse 1. Right? Since Christ suffered in the flesh, brethren, who was vindicated? Who was vindicated? Well, Jesus Christ was vindicated against his enemies. He most certainly was. That's why we read Matthew 24. I mean, part of it to the fact that, yes, how are you supposed to endure hardship? Be a faithful servant. Why? Because the day of recompense was coming for them. And God was telling them, you're going to be vindicated. Wait just a little longer. Wait and you will be vindicated. And brethren, listen, I don't have some word of God that a judgment's coming in 10, 15, 20 years to vindicate us. But you know what? I do know that as we confess that God is both going to judge the just, the, the living and the dead, he's going to judge people one day. There is a final day coming. For every man to stand before the court of God, and they will have to give an account. And if they spoke ill about God's church, it's going to be like what Jesus had to tell Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's going to look at them and say, why did you persecute me? Why did you speak ill of me? Why did you say all sorts of untrue things against me, brethren? And they will have no answer. They will have to give an account to the just and holy God. So as you think then, okay... Not only do I have to endure hardship and suffering, but I have to endure it under maligning. I have to endure it under slander. And brethren, listen, I've said this a million times. I know, I know we don't suffer like other people do. And but listen, I'm happy about that. I am happy that people are not in here ready to barge into these doors because we're worshiping today. Amen. I mean, we don't want that for our Christian brethren. But if God so chooses to put them on that training ground, just because men meant it for evil, oh, what did God do? God meant it for their good, brethren. But for us, I'm glad we're not on that ground. I'm glad that all we have to deal with is maligning and slander. But listen, it doesn't make your hardship any less 
than someone else's. Don't compare yourself to Christians. Oh, they suffer more. There, I'm not as Christian. Brethren, that's not a biblical idea. Don't idolize the suffering of other people. Oh, how I wish those Christians would be in our shoes. Not un, 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 ungoing, uh, or undergoing all of that persecution. But brethren, that's the path God has put them on. And if God puts us on that path, what will we do? We'll joyfully walk it. We'll go to the battleground. We'll go to the training ground. We'll endure it. We'll put on the armor and arm ourselves with that mentality. Brethren, don't let your mentality now be shifted in thinking that your suffering and your hardship is nothing. Brethren, when people malign us out there and they give us the bird, we do like what Sergio reminded me of the other week. Brethren, we rejoice that in that kind of hardship, we rejoice in that kind of thing. And brethren, that's why we tell people to repent. Because God does and God will bring vengeance upon those who do not believe the gospel. And you can take joy. God's going to bring recompense upon his enemies when they slander you and they revile you and they say all sorts of untruth about you. So I thought we could get into verse 7, but we'd be here way longer. This feels appropriate to end. So let me close with prayer. We'll ask God to help us in this and we'll be back in verse 7 next week.